0: short rounds. Hey y'all and welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers podcast. I'm your host James Hauser and this is a short round Philippine War Part 1.5 Uncle Sam's Imperial Army. Longtime listeners will know that when I do series I do supplemental short rounds which often contain detail about the armies and the soldiers. Well today's short round is one of those a Philippine War supplemental that is important enough that I'm just calling it Philippine War Part 1.5. So last week, I described how the Philippine War began, how America's involvement in the Spanish-American War led to it gaining an empire, an empire that included the Philippine Islands, but the Filipinos disagreed. I left that episode on the verge of a clash between the Filipino Army of Liberation and the United States Army. But during that episode, I didn't get much of a chance to talk about the U.S. military in this time period, especially the Army and Marine Corps. This is kind of a weird time in American military history where lots of folks will not have a solid image in their head of what your typical soldier looked like. So this is where I am doing that. We're going to go into organization, leadership, weapons, uniform, food, and of course, culture. So let's meet the force America sent to conquer the Philippines, the United States' Army for Empire. As always, this is not just history, but military history, so there's some dark and bloody stuff going on. This podcast is PG-13, the language is clean, the content is not. All my sources will be posted on my website in the big Philippine Wars source post at UnknownSoldiersPodcast.com, so if you want to fact-check me, feel free to do so. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. I'm trying to be entertaining, but all the information I'm giving you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. I'm going to start this one off weird. Okay, so when I was a kid, Animorphs, Animorphs, was one of my favorite book series, and they were great books, they're they're still bangers today, I think. One of the first things that hooked me was the cover, showing some teenager in in the stages of transforming into an animal, which is basically what happens to most teenagers anyway when they, like, see a girl or they go through puberty or something. But I'm going to use that transformation, that morphing into, through stages, as an analogy for the American combat soldier of the Spanish and Philippine wars. You can probably imagine what a Union Civil War soldier looked like, right? And maybe what an American World War I or World War II soldier looked like. The soldier I'm describing today was midway through that morph from Civil War soldier to World War I soldier mid transformation from the civil war army to the world war army from the 19th century to the 20th century this was the army and the marine corps don't forget them of the american empire and you can see this in the leadership lots and lots of the older generals in the philippine war the the combat veterans the generals and some of the older colonels were civil war veterans these were guys who had served as youngsters in the civil war But their young subordinates, the young lieutenants and captains and majors, in some cases even the colonels, would be generals in the World Wars. This is where the two generations merged, where the old army that fought Indians on the frontier gave way to the new army, the 20th century army that fought the Germans and the Japanese. For instance, the U.S. Army's commanders in the Philippine War were, in order, spoilers, doesn't matter, Generals Wesley Merritt... Well S. Otis, Arthur MacArthur Jr., and Adna Chaffee. All of them were Civil War veterans. Merritt, Otis, and Chaffee had fought at Gettysburg. MacArthur served under Sherman and received the Congressional Medal of Honor for his service in the Battle of Chattanooga. There was even a former Confederate officer, Joseph Wheeler, who was a general during the Spanish and Philippine-American Wars. This created one of the Spanish-American War's legendary stories. When General Wheeler saw the Spanish retreating, he forgot which war he was in, and he yelled, Let's go, boys! We got the damn Yankees on the run again! But the younger officers, you know, not the people who have, you know, random freakouts and flashbacks in their heads screaming out the Civil War in the middle of a battle, the younger officers were the next generation. The Philippine War was a who's who of future U.S. Army leaders, and I'll point some of these guys out during the series. Most of America's First World War generals, and every single U.S. Army chief of staff until 1945, fought in the Philippines as junior officers. They included Leonard Wood, Tasker H. Bliss, Peyton C. March, John J. Pershing, and at the end of this series, a young lieutenant named George C. Marshall, who would be chief of staff in World War II and is one of my heroes. The Philippine War also featured 1st Sergeant Benjamin Fuloy and Lieutenant Billy Mitchell, the future fathers of the U.S. Air Force, and future Marine Corps leaders Smedley Butler and John A. Lejeune. This was a war taking place at the hinge of the century, a midway point in American historical memory, when the generations were crossing over between the Civil War and the World Wars. Alright, that being established... To talk about the U.S. Army and the Philippine War, we have to start with the regulars. The regular army. Guys who had made the army a career and likely regretted it. The long-service professionals. The guy who signed up for like 20 years. In 1898, the regular army counted 25 infantry regiments, numbers 1 through 25, cavalry regiments, numbers 1 through 10, and artillery regiments, numbers 1 through 5. The 24th and 25th Infantry and the 9th and 10th Cavalry were special. These guys were the African-American units, the Buffalo Soldiers, and I will address them and their experience of the war in their own separate short round in a couple of weeks. The regular army in 1898 was extremely, astonishingly small. 28,000 officers and men scattered across the United States in tiny garrisons, mostly in the West, watching the Indians because for over a century, with a few brief interruptions like, say, a civil war or a Mexican war, the U.S. Army's primary mission had been fighting the American Indians. That was its purpose. Anyone joining the Army could expect most of his time to be spent at some lonely frontier outpost in, like, Arizona or Colorado in the middle of nowhere. This was, of course, a major buzzkill and made the Army very unpopular, because the regular army in 1898, before, for most of the 19th century, got no respect. No one liked these guys. Civilians looked at soldiers like they had some sort of disease. Their pay was garbage, their living conditions were miserable, they spent most of their time gambling or getting drunk up to their eyeballs on cheap whiskey. Payday was infamous, because soldiers spent all their money on booze immediately and plowed through it like the world was ending. Wives would spend, like, years just on these lonely frontier outposts with no social life, just a couple of dudes <laughs> watching watching some random American Indian reservation. And for the officers, it wasn't much better. Officer promotion moved at a snail's pace. Men who would earn general stars in the Civil War found themselves wearing a captain's rank for decades. Arthur MacArthur Jr., Medal of Honor recipient, youngest regimental commander of the Civil War, one of the main figures in the Philippine War series, this dude was a captain for 23 years. Promotion was by seniority, so you had to wait till, until some ancient geriatric finally kicked it for you to get promoted. This created, like, perverse incentives. Like, when Custer's 7th Cavalry nearly got wiped out at Little Bighorn, yes, yes, very sad, but look at all the vacancies that just opened up. The enlisted men, on the other hand, usually came from society's rejects. In 1898, more than a third of the army's enlisted men were immigrants. A surprising proportion. So, James, you ask, how did the United States go from a huge Civil War army to this? Like, there was, like, almost a million men in the Civil War army, to 28,000 neglected half-starved troops. Well, America didn't really need a large army. For what? Fighting a couple hundred Apache? What was Canada going to do, shoot maple syrup at us? There was no real fear of foreign invasion. There was no real internal enemy. What was the army even for? But then the frontier closed. The Indians were all conquered and pacified and suddenly the army was out of a job. Not coincidentally, this is about the time Americans started to take a greater interest in global affairs and a greater concern with global threats. If America was going to become one of the big boys, if it was going to become a world power, it would need a big boy army. This process began with the drive towards military professionalism and education. This had been spearheaded by the army's commanding general from 1869 to 1883, General William Tecumseh Sherman. Who is famous for being a fearsome Civil War leader, but was actually kind of an intellectual? Sherman established the Infantry and Cavalry School at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, which became the Command and General Staff College today. Sherman and his successors improved living conditions, instituted marksmanship training, and built officer training schools at the various frontier outposts. The 1890s were a period of limited Army reform within their very tight budget constraints. So in 1898, the Army was ready for war in some ways. It had solidly trained officers, its soldiers were pretty disciplined, and it had a culture of professionalism. But it had not conducted large-scale combat operations in a very long time and had lost a lot of institutional memory in the process. Many of its senior officers were old Civil War vets who were basically unfit for field work. And the administration that enabled Union victory in the Civil War had been allowed to atrophy. Certain key services, like the logistics, transport, and medical branches, the stuff that hadn't been really exercised in a long time, were woefully unprepared for overseas conflict, and a lot of these services would like fall apart and break down in the Spanish-American War, highlighting the need for that reform. But the regular army boasted one huge institutional advantage— a cohort of competent and resourceful junior and field grade officers lots of these junior officers had been serving on isolated frontier outposts for a long time but that meant they had to get they had to become resourceful they had to have experience with independent commands small unit operations rough terrain limited resources and complex cultural situations from their time on the frontier and as the old officers fell out of the philippine american war due to health problems like a bunch of old officers go over to the Philippines, but a lot of them leave in a few months because their bodies can't handle it anymore. The young officers took charge. What this meant was that the U- U.S. Army's officer corps was young, dynamic, and ambitious with a skill set that worked surprisingly well in the Philippines. But there weren't enough regulars to carry the whole war. The rest of the army's soldiers would be volunteers. America has a long obsession with the citizen-soldier. The idea that a good old American boy with a rifle in his hands is the equal of any foreign enemy. And for most of American history up to this point, the citizen-soldier provided the manpower in any large-scale war, like the regular army was the small corps in peacetime. But in wartime, the volunteers came out and filled in the bulk of the army. This had been what happened in the War of 1812, the Mexican War, and the American Civil War. Like, the regular army, the regulars, the long-service troops, were a surprisingly small proportion of the Union Army during the American Civil War. And in the Spanish-American War, these volunteers were called the Boys of 98. They were organized by state, so we call them the State Volunteers. The Spanish-American War, by the way, would be the last time a volunteer army was raised On this basis, on a state level basis. When the First World War came around a few years later, the system would be centralized on a federal level. The state volunteers were recruited on a local level, so you had regiments that weren't called like 36th U.S., or 36th or 30th Infantry. You had the 20th Kansas, 1st Montana, 1st Nebraska, 10th Pennsylvania. The state volunteers' commanders could occasionally be solid, including people like the 20th Kansas's Colonel Frederick Funston and the 1st Nebraska's Colonel John Stotzenberg. But they were the exceptions. Most of the officers and NCOs were just dudes. So the state volunteers tended to be highly enthusiastic, but poorly trained and poorly disciplined. They also got the last pick for equipment, since the Army was completely unprepared to arm and equip 100,000 tobacco and farm boys. Lots of the state volunteers would go to war with obsolete equipment, old uniforms, and outdated rifles. The state volunteers formed the bulk of the U.S. Army in the Philippines when the war began, up to the middle of 1899. But their terms of enlistment were expiring, and they wanted to go home. By the end of 1899, the state volunteers had left the Philippines and they would need to be replaced. So starting in mid-1899, the regulars would be joined by the new army, the U.S. Volunteers. These were units organized on the federal level, often led by regular army officers. These were the 26th through 49th Infantry Regiments and the 11th Cavalry Regiment. The U.S. volunteers enlisted specifically for the Philippine-American War. Like, the war's going on, we need soldiers, you want to sign up? These are the guys that raised their hand. And they would carry the war into 1900 and beyond. The U.S. volunteers marked a transition in American history where a wartime army would now be raised by the federal government on a centralized War Department level instead of the states. This is a system that foreshadows the World Wars because they're putting aside the state volunteers, who were a Civil War throwback. The U.S. volunteers were designed to combine the discipline of the regulars to the enthusiasm of the state volunteers. They were remarkably well-trained. They may have been some of the most well-trained soldiers in U.S. history up to that point. Their training included long ruck marches, physical fitness, marksmanship, and small unit tactics. Many of their recruits were former state volunteers who had re-upped because they liked the soldier's life and they wanted to finish the war. Go figure. So many of them were veterans. And unlike the long-service regulars or the naive state volunteers, most of the U.S. volunteers knew what they were getting into. Man for man, they were some of the best soldiers the U.S. Army has ever raised in a single unit. John D. LaWall, one young U.S. volunteer, lied about his age. He said he was 18, but he was actually 15 years old when he went to war with the 27th Infantry Regiment. But this was an age when elementary school-aged children were working in mines and factories, so, you know, uh, potato-potato. Lawall said, In the summer of 1899, I was greatly impressed by the opportunity of travel, adventure, and experience, offered by joining one of the 30 new regiments which were being organized for service in the Philippines. So strongly did the desire to go and see for myself what these islands and their people were like and to participate in such an unprecedented war take possession of me that I determined to enlist. So all in all to be honest, the US Army soldier of the Philippine War was of a pretty decently high quality, pretty decent human material. The regulars tended to be well-disciplined and long-service troops with lots of, you know, just lots of experience under their belts. The state volunteers, enthusiastic without discipline. But the U.S. volunteers tended to combine the benefits of both. So those are your three categories of U.S. Army soldiers in the Philippines. The weary regulars who served throughout the thing, the state volunteers who kicked it off, and the U.S. volunteers who carried it through to the end. But there was a fourth category of American servicemen who fought on the ground in the Philippines and this was the United States Marine. The Marine Corps in the 1890s did not have nearly the legendary reputation it has today. It played almost no role in the American Civil War. Its primary purpose was still to serve as onboard security and landing parties for the U.S. Navy, and occasionally to guard naval bases. So the Marine Corps was tiny. In 1899, it numbered only 76 officers, not a typo, 76 officers and 3,142 men, less than a twentieth the size of the army. But the Marines' performance in Cuba, particularly the heroic and mostly forgotten today seizure of Guantanamo Bay, gave them enhanced publicity, and the Navy's new global mission boosted its fortunes. By 1901, the Marine Corps had doubled in size from two years previously. The Marine Corps now would play a relatively small role in the Philippine War. In May 1899, Admiral Dewey asked for a battalion of Marines to help guard his main naval bases at Cavite near Manila and later Olongapo at Subic Bay. This battalion eventually expanded to a regiment and finally a brigade, numbering around 1,600 Marines in the Philippines by 1901, which was small compared to the Army, but at the time that was over a quarter of the Marine Corps. Their operations centered on Cavite and Subic Bay, and while they did take part in combat near these areas, they would only be a small part of the war effort mainly carried by the army. That being said, a battalion of marines would play a major part in the Philippine War near the very end. The story of Major Littleton Waller and his Samar Battalion would go down in American history for not very good reasons. We'll get to that in part four. So if you're a Marine and listening to this, don't worry, devil dog, you're going to be down in the mud with us Army guys soon enough. So let's build your mental picture of Uncle Sam's Imperial Warfighter, his weapons, his gear, his food, and his mentality. Weapons! The part most of y'all want to hear about. Okay, sure. The U.S. Army's main service rifle from 1894 to 1903 was the Springfield Model 1892, nicknamed the Krag Jorgensen Rifle for its Norwegian designers. The legendary Krag was the famous weapon of the Philippine War, appearing in songs, book titles, you name it. The Krag Jorgensen was the U.S. Army's first bolt-action rifle to replace the old single-shot breech loaders. It held five rounds and fired a 30 caliber cartridge. The Krag was popular, it was a very popular weapon, but it had a design flaw, a big one its box magazine fitted to the weapon it like was not removable from the weapon had to be reloaded one round at a time through a trap door on the right-hand side which was an absolute nightmare to do in combat by contrast in 1898 the spanish the spanish army had clip-fed mauser rifles a superior german design During the battles of the Spanish-American War, often the Spanish almost overwhelmed the Americans because they could reload so much faster, just the sheer volume of rifle fire. They could just slam another clip into the Mauser and fire again while the Americans were trying to thumb these little one round after another into the Craig Jorgensen's magazine. This would lead the U.S. Army to seek a new design, the clip-fed M1903 Springfield used in the First World War. But when the war began, there weren't enough crags and stock for all the new American volunteers, the state volunteers. Most of them ended up with the .45-70 caliber Springfield Model 1873, a single shot breech loading black powder rifle that American troops had carried in the Indian Wars, like this is what Custer's troops were using. The old Springfield was pretty obsolete by 1899, easily outmatched by either the Krag or the Mauser. But with the departure of the state volunteers in 1899, the old Springfield vanished from the war. After this, everyone's using the Craig Jorgensen. The Marine Corps, because they had to be special, used the 6mm M1895 Lee Navy rifle at first. But the smaller 6mm round and long-term maintenance issues had the Marines chucking this rifle out the window by 1899. From 1900 onward, and for most of the series, most Marine Corps riflemen carried the Craig Jorgensen. The standard American sidearm was the Colt M1892 revolver. It worked just fine until the Army had to fight the Moros in the southern Philippines. We'll talk about that when we get there. That's the whole legacy of the M1911 Colt 45. A number of shotguns also saw use in the war, usually the model 1897 trench gun of later First World War fame. The artillery's workhorse was the 3.2-inch M1897 field gun, a rifled breech-loading weapon. It had a range of about 5,000 meters, longer than its Civil War ancestors, but shorter than its World War descendants. Again, remember, this is the midway point. The Army also had machine guns, including the six-barreled Gatling gun, an improved version, and the Colt Browning M1895. These were still primitive weapons on wheeled carriages, not at the level of World War I Maxim guns, but they could be devastating. The artillery and the machine guns they gave the U.S. military a massive firepower edge over their Filipino opponents. Alright, uniforms. When the US Army went to war in 1898, most of its soldiers would not have looked out of place in the Civil War. Most of them were still wearing Union Blue, a heavy duty wool service uniform, and the blue flannel shirt dubbed the Campaign Shirt. These were uniforms designed for Western frontier warfare and not the tropical climates of the Philippines. Americans in the early stages of the conflict suffered under the thick blue uniforms. Like, it is humid, it's almost Like, real feel of 130 out here, and I'm wearing this enormous blue flannel shirt. I'm dying. But as the war went on, American soldiers were issued the new khaki uniform, modeled after the British service outfit. The lightweight cotton of the khaki uniform was much better suited for a humid, tropical environment. Only a few khakis were available for the Spanish-American War, famously worn by Teddy Roosevelt's Rough Riders. The photographs you'll see will see Teddy Roosevelt's Rough Riders in khaki, and like everyone around them is still in blue. But by 1901, most American troops had traded in the blue for the khaki. Again, a visible transition from the 19th to the 20th century, because this is roughly the color American soldiers would wear in the World Wars, replacing the color they had worn in the Civil War in the middle of this conflict. The Marine Corps had a deep blue uniform similar to its modern day colors, and they wore this uniform in the Spanish American War. But just like the Army, they had to cope with the new conditions of the Philippines. By 1900, the Marines in the Philippines wore the khaki as well. The U.S. Army's standard issue headgear was the forage cap, yet another Civil War throwback with some slight modifications. Soldiers were also issued the conical pith helmet, the iconic headgear of imperialism worn by the British. But most soldiers hated the pith helmet. They hated the forage cap. The vast majority of American troops wore the four-cornered felt campaign hat, which closely resembled a modern drill sergeant or park ranger hat. So, like, you ever see a drill sergeant with that long brown hat, that brown brown? That is what most, most American soldiers were wearing in the Philippine War. The Marines still held the old Civil War Kepi, with only slight modifications up to 1902, but soon they too received campaign hats for for wearing in the field. Pretty much every soldier and Marine wore the campaign hat if they had a chance, so your average American warfighter wore side-laced olive drab boots, a blue and khaki uniform, and a broad-brimmed cowboy-looking campaign hat. The transition period, midway point between Civil War and World War. So what did they eat? The food. The standard ration in the Philippines was pretty close to Civil War rations. 22 ounces flour, 20 ounces beef, 7 ounces potatoes, 2.5 ounces beans, 2.5 ounces sugar, 1.6 ounces coffee, and some salt, pepper, vinegar, and yeast. In practice, the flour was usually the much-hated hardtack, and bacon would take the place of beef. The U.S. in the 19th century was a bacon-eating country, insert vintage 2010 meme here. So that was what American soldiers got. Bacon, hardtack, beans, potatoes, and coffee. Could be worse. It could be the British Army ration from the Crimean War. Supply could be pretty unreliable in remote areas of the Philippines, and lots of soldiers just ate whatever they could get. This included the age-old practice of foraging, buying, or sometimes stealing food from the locals. They managed to get corn, eggs, rice, and various fruits like banana, mangoes, and pineapples from the Filipino countryside. The carabao, or water buffalo, was the common pack animal in the Philippines, but that could become a burger very quickly if a farmer wasn't careful enough. Clean drinking water was a problem due to the lack of sanitation, and this led to disease, especially cholera, diarrhea, and dysentery. So it's no surprise that the drink of choice was booze. The soldiers drink every drop of the beer or liquor imported from the States, but discover new and terrible-slash-wonderful concoctions in the Philippines, mostly made from coconut or sugarcane or tree bark. And they drink like fishes. Never bet against a soldier's ability to find or consume alcohol in any situation whatsoever. So what did they think about all of this? Most American servicemen weren't particularly fond of the Philippine-American War, They didn't really believe in its motivations. They didn't really believe in the imperialist rhetoric or benevolent assimilation. Especially since they had met the Filipinos and didn't really like them and didn't really consider them worth liberating. But Americans may not like fighting nasty wars, but they like losing nasty wars even less. The soldiers would spend a lot of time wondering if the war was right, if the war was worth it. Lots of soldiers would write letters home saying, this war sucks. This is stupid. Why are we even here? but no one really seemed to hesitate to do their job. Indeed, the American servicemen of the Philippine War had unusually high morale and zeal for combat. I think this was mostly a product of the patriotic attitudes of the day, the romantic and glorious image of war most Americans held, and a sense of cultural and racial superiority over their opponents. Because many Americans, like we've said, viewed the world through terms of race, and it came out in their attitudes. While this was not universal, many American servicemen had a general disgust and distaste for the Filipinos. A lot of this was probably just, they're the enemy. They had odd behaviors and weird methods, they had strange cultural beliefs, and they fought in ways that many Americans deemed immoral or dishonorable. But there was definitely racism at work, and it shaped how Americans saw the conflict. John D. Wall, the volunteer I referenced earlier, Describe the Filipinos in a letter home. Imagine an Indian crossed with a Negro, the product of this union married to a Chinese, and whatever conception you may form of the offspring of such a strange combination should bear an analogy in appearance, if not in mental or moral attributes, to the Filipinos. And this sense of cultural and racial superiority, the blurred lines of the conflict, and the general tendency towards aggressiveness and gung-ho patriotism and casual violence, bled over into atrocity. The Philippine-American War was a dirty freaking war on both sides, and we will see just how dirty as this series goes on. American soldiers would do things in this conflict that would today be regarded as bona fide war crimes and with a level of widespread acceptance and toleration that would be unthinkable in the modern army. Like, Americans have done bad stuff in every war they fought in. Every army has. This is totally universal. But Americans were much worse in 1899 than they were in 2001 or 2003. We'll see atrocities throughout this series. The regulars, the state or U.S. volunteers, the Marine Corps, none of them would come out with clean hands. The soldier and marine of the Philippine-American War was an aggressive, skilled fighter with lots of advantages. But he was also a brutal fighter. It was a good army, a patriotic army, a lethal army. But at the end of the day, it was an imperial army, and it did what imperial armies do. It was given a mission, and it executed it, whether that mission was right or not. Far from making people better, war, especially a dirty, muddy war like the Philippines, usually makes people worse. Something Teddy Roosevelt and many other Americans would have to learn the hard way at the dawn of the 20th century. Thanks a bunch for listening today. If you like what you hear, tell your friends about it. If you don't, tell your enemies. Check my website at unknownsoldierspodcast.com for all today's sources and some additional commentary. I'm available on Facebook or on Twitter at UNK Soldiers Pod or email me at unknownsoldierspodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. I always appreciate feedback and commentary, etc., etc., Just kind words. I'm not perfect. You got advice. Love to hear it. Thanks again and see you next week to see Uncle Sam's Imperial Army in action. Don't miss Philippine War Part 2, Shock and Awe, next week on Unknown Soldiers.